Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. Yes, hello everybody. It's Dr. Nick here again on 3 Triple R. <laughs> Welcome to Radiotherapy Live online and on podcast. And on this somewhat wintry Melbourne morning, what better way to snuggle up with a cup of coffee and keep us company here on Triple R 102.7. And while misdiagnosis continues her European perambulations, I'm fortunate to be joined here in the studio this morning by two of our regular panellists. I've got scientists. Scientist, psychotherapist, prudence dear, an academic sociologist, master of the radio buttons and knobs, panel beater. Panel beater, you're looking particularly well this morning. <laughs> Wide awake. <laughs> well, uh, what does that tell us? It tells us you've been here for some time working very hard. Been, been, it was an early start this morning, yeah. Yeah, good on you. Well done supporting Triple R as always. <laughs> and Prudence, you've uh, brought us in a very special guest today. I have. We're going to have a bit of a chat with Dr. Polly Bennett, who is a researcher and um, uh, has a PhD in critical sociology. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. But anyway, we're going to talk a little bit, well, a lot, about disability and, and perhaps the invisibility of disability. Lovely. Polly, you're here with us in the studio. Hi, yeah, good morning. I know. Um, this is all uh, very exciting. It's a bit of an adventure leaving home and being in a radio studio. Thanks very much for coming in. We'll be talking to Polly um, after the new segment. Of course, today is Mother's Day. You did remember that, didn't you, dear listener? If not, I'm sure there's still time to pop out, get some tired, overpriced flowers from the service station. So, so a special good morning to all the mothers out there. Um, our other guest this morning is psychiatrist Dr. Philip Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell is an expert on bipolar disorder. He recently published some fascinating research on neural connections in young people at risk of bipolar. So, for everything you want to know about bipolar, Dr. Mitchell will be here in the second half of the show with all the answers. But before that, it's our new segment. That sounds like a foxhound waiting for the postman. <laughs> oh, I was going to go for a short-haired German pointer. There you go. What is it? If I uh, understood the uh, notes, I think we were up for a golden retriever this morning. Is that right? Oh, well done. Yeah, oh, so that was, was, uh, yes. that was a retriever. Yes, of course, it's the dog park shout-out here at Triple R. We love all animals, the cats, dogs, aardvarks and exolotls. But you don't see many of them in the park, so it's dogs <laughs> today. It's the turn of the lovely Cassie whose beautiful golden retriever, Nala, was running around in the park. And rather delightfully, was actually having a play with one of our... Uh, can we have a shout back? Because a few months ago, we had the delightfully named Snickers, um, who was the dog of young Ned, uh, who was delighted to hear his name on radio. Apparently scored a lot of runs in the cricket at the same time. So today's dog park shout-out goes to Cassie and Nala, and, again, Ned and Snickers. All right. So, let's forge ahead with some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au.
Panel Beta, what have you got for us in the news today? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, I've been trying to follow this election campaign and look for something resembling discussion about any kind of policy. It's a bit thin <laughs> on the ground. Um, my, my, my first port of call, or one of, one of my two or three ports of call, is our higher ed education mm-hmm. and uh, looking at where policy is going on that. And uh, as is not surprising at all. Higher education doesn't really feature in in, um, in election campaigns for all sorts of reasons. But what while I was fishing around for it, what did catch my eyes was some discussion around med student training. Oh, yes. And um, med student training generally, just in terms of like the great replacement, making mm-hmm. sure that we're graduating enough to um, meet our needs, and then more specifically around GPs. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping you might have a bit of a, an intuitive response to this. Oh, a topic fairly dear to my heart. <laughs> yes, <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. And, and I speak to Dr. Sharma about it, you know, all the time. Um, Anyway, so just uh, the headline is basically that there's a call out by the the deans of the med schools, backed up by um, Royal College and all and so on and so forth, for a round figure of about a thousand funding for about a thousand um, extra places for med student studies, mm-hmm. um, and this is to address uh, a a real and a, a projected um, decline in um, student enrolments into the field into medicine, in particular with projections around GPs and around rural and regional services. Now, of course, we have to differentiate between um, enrolments for medicine, which is for students, and then GPs, which would be many, many years later after they've qualified. Well, this is part of the point that they're making in the lobbying effort that, you know, we're looking at a 10 to 15-year training period here. So the discussion that we're having immediately around this campaign is actually a discussion about, you know, the (laughs) mid-30s. <laughs> right, um, and uh, and uh, interestingly, um, a lot of this um, noise or lobbying is coming from the G8 uh, group of universities. You know, the the traditional um, providers of of um, med grads, they 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 graduate about sixty two percent of um, uh, Australian med students at the moment. We've got an issue in well, in some quarters, it believes it's believed to be an issue that we're we're graduating as many domestic. Um, med students as we are um, uh, importing graduates. Mm-hmm. So it's a, almost a one-to-one ratio. Wow, I had no, I, no yeah. idea that we were importing that many. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty extraordinary. Um, and so the sort of language that's being used by the, the deans and the peak bodies is, you know, not sustainable, not preferential, and um, also, you know, even pointing to questions of ethics about the recruitment of people out of um, uh, medical systems where perhaps yeah. we're, where we're effectively poaching. Um, so, you know, this is being costed around about $136 million. So it's actually not very much money in a trillion-dollar economy. So the question gets raised about what is going on here. Um, Australia's not the only one. Um, I, during the week, uh, the BMJ reported on this as well um, mm-hmm. for, in the UK as far as they're concerned. One-third, they, they surveyed GPs specifically, about 2,500 of them. One-third, one-third of uh, GPs plan to leave within the next five years. It's an extraordinary thought, isn't it? And general practice used to be the um, majority-favoured speciality that students were going to go into. Um, back in my day, more than 50% used to say, I'm going to general practice. I think the latest survey figures suggested it had dropped right down to about 14%. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. And I, I, 
I, I, the thing that caught my attention with the deans talking was, um, you know, obviously the, the the issue, you know, the the prevailing the immediate issue of the numbers, but I actually think we're witnessing a a very um, interesting shift in the nature of the medical workforce. And I think something else is at play here. It's um, it's got it's structural in the sense of what it means to run a GP clinic and be effectively a sole operator, um, and what it means uh, for career development if that's the track that people are going down. And we've got you know such a dramatic increase of the last fifteen twenty years in the skills and the nature of the skills of all sorts of other health professionals. Um, whether they be nurses and clinically based nurses, or whether it be even and um, looking for the roof, uh, the physical reaction here, Dr. Nick, uh, um, you know, pharmacists. Yes, well, it's, it's interesting because <laughs> there's traditionally seen as this kind of turf war between general practice and pharmacists and nurses. I, I'm on the other side of that fence. I've, I'm fully supportive of integration of care and primary care between those and I was involved in training um, some of the first nurse practitioners in this country. Mm. Uh, There's been a complete revolution in how primary care is delivered and much of general practice has gone being owned and run by doctors to being corporatized. Um, there was a fascinating study out of Scandinavia where they surveyed a massive study of over four and a half million people and showed that long-term engagement with a GP, even when you factored in every other confounding factor, long-term engagement with the GP was associated with better outcomes, lower morbidity, lower mortality and fewer hospital admissions. Mm. And that began at two years of contact and we're losing that. We're losing that long-term connection with family doctors. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah. Well, I think, and especially over the last couple of years, where we've seen, uh, uh, you know, the ad, you know real development of telehealth, which is wonderful because it cre- increases that accessibility. Um, but also, yeah, it's, it's it's like it's becoming the model. And and again, just as you've you know had. Um, you know, commercialised, I suppose, clinics. I mean, they're now services where you just kind of go online and a GP, you know, talks to you, but it's, like, never going to be the same one time after time, is it? I was feeling all quite bouncy until we did this, and now I'm feeling, I'm feeling all... <laughs> well, what is the glass-half-full version of the new, that news? Uh, well, for me, the glass-half-full has to be that uh, all the swings and roundabouts, they always swing back the other way. At the moment, general practice is not seen as a particularly attractive speciality. Um, a shout-out to any medical student. Now, this is the best one that you can possibly do. <laughs> <laughs> never had a dull day in over 35 years of general practice, so get in and specialise as, as a GP. And we'll leave it at that as a little promo <laughs> Uh, panel Peter, thank you. It's a very, very interesting piece of news, and you're absolutely right. Uh, hard to find a lot much policy around health amongst all the things that are in the election, but there we are. We will no doubt come back to, to that another time. We'll be back with you in just a moment. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Prudence, you've got a wonderful guest, Dr Polly Bennett. I have, yes. I'm really delighted that we've got uh, Dr Polly Bennett with us today. Um, Polly's, uh, Polly's pronouns are they, them, and they've, uh, they've got quite a, you know, a, a large CV here, really. They've, they're a consultant <laughs> researcher, they, they're a writer, they're a sessional academic... Um, and they have a PhD in critical sociology and of alternative subculture, sport and physical culture. 
So I think, you know, this is going to be quite an interesting conversation as Polly really does promote uh, elements of social justice and as an advocate and an activist. So, And it's particularly focused um, currently on gender, sexuality, class and disability. So I thought we would have some a bit of a chat about that. So thank you for coming along into the studio today. Thanks for inviting me in. It's interesting being on the other side of the um, studio. I normally listen to the show every week. Yeah, well, so. it's always great to have a fan on board. So <laughs> thanks for coming along. And yes, you can see the other side of the, uh, of the glass, as it were. Um, okay, so we're going to talk a bit about disability and perhaps how is disability really viewed from a societal perspective? And I've been using you know, that phrase, you know, disability invisibility. So can we sort of think mm. about what, what, what disability, what is disability from a societal perspective? Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> we could probably have a whole show just on that concept. Um, I think there's different ways of understanding the concept of disability, depending on the context in which we're in. And so there are now with the NDIS and a lot of people's mm-hmm. knowledge of that, and that being part of the debate and discussion as well. Um, thank you, Mr Morrison, um, during, in the lead-up to the elections, we have a particular concept of disability which is probably currently driven by the NDIS model yeah. of disability, yes. which means disability is defined in particular ways, um, it needs to have meet particular criteria, um, the impairments need to be of a certain level mm. that require support. Um, and so we're talk- when we're talking about that form of disability, we're often talking about more visible forms of disability. Yeah. Um, I-, I think we were discussing a while ago, um, you know, the wheelchair has become a kind of universal symbol of disability. That's only one, fo- you know, uh, one form of associated with one form of disability. Um, so I think historically there's also been the kind of medical model of disability where bodies need to be fixed um, and there are diagnoses attached to disability. Um, and then there was also the pushback against that uh, during the 70s and 80s in particular by uh, disability activists who said, um, no, my body is not a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be fixed. Um, it's society, in fact, that disables me and prevents my access to um, a whole bunch of services and structures and social systems um, because society hasn't adjusted. So that's called the social model of disability. Yeah. And so it depends in which context you're looking at that concept, mm. what, it, what disability itself might mean, and even whether or not that disability is invisible or not, um, and it also depends on the social yeah. context in which you're in as to whether or not um, a disability or an impairment is in fact invisible or not yeah. invisible. It's a question whether you're looking for it. And so, yeah, I mean, I think I guess a lot of people can relate to, yes, the, the kind of the wheelchair symbology yeah. of physical disability and can understand, so able-bodied people can understand why somebody would mm. need some sort of uh, special access, you know, capabilities or something. Mm. But what sort of things would then fall into perhaps, um, would fall into the invisible disabilities where even perhaps what the person who's got that mm. doesn't even recognise that they have yeah. a disability or don't want to? I mean, you think about <clears throat> if you come from that perspective of it's society that's disabling, it's not necessarily mm. the body that's created the disability, 
then you, you just open wide open for how many different forms of different types of mm. bodies and diversity of bodies might in fact be disabled. And so, for example, um, I'm an asthmatic. I'm quite a severe asthmatic. Um, that's changed over time. So there was definitely a genetic impairment in regards to mm -hmm. my lungs. It runs in the family. Um, but then in addition, environmental factors that have exacerbated it. And then in addition to that, I have triggers which can cause asthma flares. Mm -hmm. um, people may not realise, but asthma is covered under the Anti-Discrimination Act under mm -hmm. disability. So in some conditions, for example, poor occupational health and safety, during a summer of rampant bushfires and hideous air quality mm. that's not being managed, um, that becomes a disability for me because I am disabled. I'm no longer able to leave home because I literally could die if I left home under that air quality. Mm. Um, so I think there's, I mean, then when you add to that mental health conditions, um, which because of the nature of the NDIS and the amount of funding that was going into it, mental health organisations and advocates also, um, you know, stopped the fight to keep mental health and disability separate and, in fact, mm -hmm. became yeah. part of advocating for mental health to be yeah. acknowledged as yeah. a disability under NDIS. So, there's a, yeah, you can see there's a whole series of conditions under which disability changes both Absolutely. materially, physically, and also in how we mm. conceive okay. of it. Dr so, Nick, you yeah, wanted to say something. Yeah, so I'm, I'm slightly ashamed to say, Polly, that I had never considered something like asthma as a disability. So you've already educated me this morning. <laughs> um, are there other examples like that that mm. would not be immediately apparent, mm. even to someone like myself? Um, I'm also neurotypical. I have multiple diagnoses. <laughs> oh, sorry, no, no neurodivergent. <laughs> oh, wow. There you go. I wonder if that's, that's my neurodivergent mind working. Um, I'm neurodivergent. Um, for those who don't know, it's a concept that was defined by Judy Singer um, and it covers a whole bunch of what we would call medical diagnoses, mm -hmm. including probably most famously autism, but including PTSD, extreme forms of trauma, Trauma, anxiety, different mental health conditions. I think bipolar mm. might be included under... As a, a follow-on from trauma, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. ADHD. Um, so I won't go into my medical diagnoses, but... Um, What's the impact of being like neurodivergent from a, a kind of disability perspective, would you say? Um, I think we live in a neurotypical world. Yes. And so, again, that's an example of something... I, I don't think that I... Yeah, I don't think it's my impairments, in inverted commas, or the way that I think or understand the world um, is the issue. It's that we live in a neurotypical world that requires um, particular timelines and clocks yeah, and yeah, is. is sensory overload everywhere with mm. lights and sound, which can have an impact on literally so, I mean, anyone. So the classic sort of uh, situation would be for, for younger people at school where, yes. where they're expected to follow, as you say, timelines to be yes. timetabled, to do yep. tasks in a certain way, way. and yeah. often to do them in incredible... I mean, classrooms are incredibly noisy, distracting yes. environments. And those people what have been typically in the past branded lazy or not conscious Concentrating or, or aggressive sort of because yeah. maybe um, they're just not coping with, this, with like, that environment. To me, a normal person mm. str would so, struggle when they're young to sit in a room quietly for. Right. A <laughs> and this is the context. Then, mm. then that 
if we recognise it as something, let's call it disability, that we need to make some sorts of allowances. Yes. We need extra support yes. that we need to provide for people. Yes. So we need to be able to recognise it. So we yep. have to kind of end up labelling it, don't we? And have, thinking about labelling things then, what about the language, the language around disability, how we describe mm. ourselves or each other? How should we be looking at that? Do you have any sort of Well, thoughts? I think um, if we take one step back and connect the two, I think the the issue is um, the stigmatising um, and oppressive systems that we live, social systems that we mm-hmm. live under um, from the capitalist kind of forms of work and ideas of productivity and value. So I think that a lot of stigma around disability comes from a very regimented Um, idea of who is valuable and who is productive in society and then the medical system which is like bodies need to be fixed and I'm oversimplifying here (laughs) I'm aware of that but when we look at for example homosexuality was a um, diagnosis of a severe disorder I mean even the language that we use and condition that needed to be fixed Um, same with being transgender Um, and I would argue whole series of conditions that are um, in the DSM, the famous DSM, the Diagnostic Manual, um, then that has a particular model of bodies that need to be fixed and contained and recreated in this ideal model of what an able-bodied is, which, of course, almost no one fits. I mean, so if we start from that perspective and we flip it, then what we, we say is we need the people with the lived experience of both marginalisation and disability mm-hmm. and impairment to have a say over diagnoses, how health services are delivered, how research is conducted, mm-hmm. how the statistics about us are, are presented, um, the language um, that we use. And that's why, for example, a lot of people reject the um, person-first model of people with disability and, in fact, oh, claim... Put, so what's the person-first? Oh, so it's saying people like? with disability. Yeah. Um, so you say people first. Um, they're you know, we're a person first. Well, everyone's a person first. Um, And then flipped it and said, well, if we say that we're disabled by the society that we're in, um, it's nothing wrong with us. Um, Mm -hmm. We are who we are. Um, And like anyone else, we require access to health services the same as anyone else, but we don't need to be fixed in the same way that medicalised models of disability tend to treat disability. Then we say... Well, I often say I'm a disabled person because right. I'm disabled by those social right. systems. So you put the you put the identity part first. In, uh, yeah. part in first, and and I mean, I guess yeah. There's there's those two options. Um, is there a best better way to do it, or is it, is it contextual again? Again, I really think, and this is the qualitative humanities researcher speaking as well. Um, I think it's totally socially contextual. Mm -hmm. I think um, our understanding of disability as a concept is contextual, which I think I hope I've at least highlighted in an introductory way. But even how I will talk about disability and how I identify is contextual, the same Mm. as... Um, the way I identify as queer is contextual in some places. Yeah. I don't think that's relevant. And so 
I may not identify in that way. But so in my research as well, when I write, some in some context, people with disability is considered the standard respectful way mm-hmm. of talking about yeah. disability. And then in other contexts, when I'm writing from the perspective of people with lived experience of disability, I will talk about them. And if they identify mm-hmm. as a disabled person, I will definitely um, put their identity first. Right. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, that's it. our society kind of expects everybody to fit into some makes the assumption mm. that you are not disabled or you're not queer or whatever, yeah. isn't it? So that yeah. there's a mainstream kind of view and yeah. everybody else is kind of othered or marginalised yeah. in some way. And so this is part of those who... The disabled people maybe, yeah, taking control, like mm. actually advocating for themselves by highlighting yeah. the fact that they don't perhaps fit that that mainstream, you know, assumption is that right yeah Yeah, no totally and because it's we would view it as quite yeah it's quite a normative idea that everyone is you know the universal human is white probably from a colonizing country Mm. able-bodied straight and that's the assumption that everyone is and then as you said everyone else is othered when in fact the diversity of the human being is much more complicated it's a beautiful than spectrum. that it is <laughs> now i just wanted to touch on one thing about that kind of timeline now oh, yeah. um, obviously we've had 2 years of covid we've mm. had lockdowns and all sorts of things which have further impacted well impacted everyone but it can be a, a lot more difficult for people disabled mm. people um, and it's you know like uh, i guess you know there's a lot been going on that's been of concern and perhaps especially for those who yeah. are in some forms of care. So, I yeah. don't know, could you, have you got some thoughts um, around that? Yeah, I've got a lot. So, I'll try <laughs> and keep it short. Um, I think, um, again, it's, com- it's complicated. So, for some disabled folk, um, a lot of people being at home and working from home has actually meant an improvement in accessibility mm-hmm. to work meetings, to events and things like that as things went online. Um, in addition to that, thanks to disability advocacy organisations, frankly, it's not it's not because of the goodness of the heart of um, those in government, um, NDIS was kind of forced also via the Royal Commission to expand um, support for te- access to technology and that that meant that a lot of disabled folk suddenly had access to internet um, in a way that they hadn't before. So there have been some improvements, but again, it's been driven by disabled people themselves and activists and advocates. The flip side of that is there are areas um, in the disability space that do not have access to advocates that do not have a voice and those particularly in residential care, in group homes, um, it's the Royal Commission is also kind of starting to tease out some of those reports yeah. have been locked in rooms because there wasn't enough safety and equipment and PPE provided to the workers in those group homes. Um, and so one of the ways which is appalling is um, that they managed that, in inverted commas, was to lock people in rooms. Right. Yeah. Um, in the UK and in other countries, advocacy organisations have been successful in enshrining a right of advocates to access to people with disability. Um, So similar to a union rep having a right of access to a workplace, we don't have that in this country. And I think what we're going to find over the next few years as well is increasing stories of people who've been so utterly marginalised and literally locked away that, you know, we really need to... 
um, we need to hear those stories and give yeah. voice to the advocates to make make changes. Polly, I'm, I'm being absolutely fascinated by the discussion and thank you so much for coming. It certainly fired up the listeners. We've had a number of texts. There's a lovely text from Jay that talks about she was told to talk about um, specifically abled as the terminology. So, oh, wow. the, so there we are. We've got a, a number of those sorts of texts coming through. So yeah. it certainly fired up the listeners. Thank you so much for coming into the studio. That's been absolutely fascinating. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Our next guest, we have Dr. Philip Mitchell. Phil is a psychiatrist with a special interest in bipolar disorder. He's Zooming with us all the way from sunny New South Wales. Welcome, Philip. <laughs> hi, hi, Nick. Pleasure uh, to join you. And it's a bit cool up here in Sydney as well. All right, I was taking a punt at the sunny bit, and then I will skip straight past that. Um, I, I know well what the kind of work you do, but tell the listeners, for, if you could, just briefly who you are and what your expertise is. Uh, Hi, Nick. Um, I'm a uh, professor of psychiatry, so as well as being an academic uh, researcher and teacher, I also see patients in hospital and out of hospital. And my research and clinical interest focuses largely on bipolar disorder and also depression. And um, bipolar is one of the things we're going to be talking about your research in a minute, um, which was a fascinating piece of research where you looked at brain scans in younger people at risk of bipolar. But before we do that, let's just clarify a little bit for listeners what bipolar actually means, because, of course, it used to be called um, manic depressive disorder. There's a lot of confusion and sometimes um, crossover between things like bipolar and things like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So do you want to just give us a brief rundown about bipolar? I think the, um, the central aspect of bipolar disorder is that people have phases where they're unwell and distinctly different from their normal selves. I think that's the critical issue. Um, so most of their lives, people with bipolar disorder are no different to their normal personalities that you know their family and friends know them by. But they have distinct episodes that we call... Um, there's elevated episodes at the extreme. We call that mania. That's where the old term manic depressive illness comes from. Less severe hypomania and also distinct periods of profound depression, not just the ups and downs that we all go through when life gets a bit tough. So, so when people are manic, they get disinhibited. And I think that the, the, the damaging aspect is their judgment is impaired. Um, they become overly confident. So you might get a businessman who's normally very careful, checks um, decisions with advisors, who feels that they know better than others. They may go off and spend a lot, lot, invest, um, and they can do things out of character as well as spending a lot. Their libido may go up, which can destroy relationships. Um, so it's the judgment that's affected. And when depressed, people are just the opposite. They slow down. They may sleep a lot. Their brain stops working. People describe it like a brain fog or just walking through mud. They're often slowed down. Their brain can't work. And you get the most capable people that just become poorly functional. So it's 
episodes of distinct difference, and these go on usually for weeks or months, then people recover. And that time course is important, isn't it? Because I've had many people say to me, oh, my goodness, I must have bipolar because I felt fantastic this morning and by this afternoon it had all gone I felt lousy. Um, and I can switch like that you know, within a day, a couple of times within a week. Um, but that is not a label of bipolar, is it? No, we, we all go through fluctuations in our mood. That's part of the human experience. At times we're more positive, at times life gets on top of us. Um, we know also that some people with personality issues, and I think one of the issues is some people have what we call borderline personalities, so their mood can fluctuate quite a lot, but it's over minutes or hours. What we're talking about here is usually days, weeks or months. They're quite prolonged changes. And one of the features of bipolar, again, just to talk about it in a more general sense, is that there's often a very long time lag between first symptoms and actually making the diagnosis of bipolar because it often isn't immediately obvious that it's a bipolar depression or a bipolar hypomania. Um, and uh, I believe it's normally about 10 years with bipolar 2 uh, is the average time yeah, so diagnosis. Yeah, so, so you use the term bipolar 2. I'll just explain to your listeners. So we use the term bipolar 1 for the sort of classic manic depressive illness. This is people who have very severe disturbance when they're manic. They might be psychotic, don't have to be, but they're really very unwell, and that may lead to the need for hospitalisation. Um, bipolar 2 is when people are still having elevated episodes distinct from their normal selves, but they're not as extreme. Um, those around them, you know, their partners, their friends know they're different. It's just not usual sort of Joe or Sally. And, that, um, and again, it's prolonged, but it's not to that severe extent. So that's bipolar too. So getting back to your question, um, we, we know that it takes quite a while often to make the diagnosis. And I think at one level that's understandable because the illness usually first presents with a phase of depression. So if you've got depression in someone who's in their late adolescence, early 20s, you know, you're not sure at that point, is it going to be bipolar, the depression is part of that, or is it going to be unipolar depression or the technical term these days, major depressive disorder? And only time will tell. Um, so it, it can take a while to twig and for it to become obvious. Sometimes the milder elevated episodes sort of blur into normal behaviour, so you're not sure, is this illness, is this not? So it takes a while for the penny to drop. We don't want to overdiagnose, and I think at the moment we're in a phase of overdiagnosing bipolar. Um, so you don't want to start treatment, be that medicine or psychology, if you're not sure. But it does take a while. Good American studies showing up to a decade. I think we're getting better. I think there's more community awareness now. So I don't think it's as long, but it's still an issue. I remember talking to Australia's famous Olympic swimmer, John Conrad's in the media about his bipolar, bipolar 2, and he described his hypomanic spells as, I wasn't just the life and soul of the party, I was the life and soul of the after party. And when everybody had had enough, <laughs> I kept going, and it was too much. And that thing of knowing afterwards, 
oh my God, what was I doing? What was I saying? Um, my, um, yeah. Prudence has uh, got a question for you. Uh, oh. Hi, Hi Prudence. Hi, yeah. Professor Phil. Um, I guess, yeah, look, we, we, you, you mentioned and kind of categorised these elevated episodes as largely in the negative, and I'm just wondering, so is there truth to the, the idea that sometimes people find they're incredibly creative and those more creative people can actually perhaps even be resistant to treatment around their, their bipolar disorder because they actually want to what, exploit that manic phase because that's when they're actually at their most creative? Look, I th- it's a complicated um, issue, Prudence. The, certainly some people, particularly at the beginning of an upswing, are more creative, um, and that's um, undoubted. There's been good studies in particularly um, arts communities, uh, written visual art, um, showing that um, for the average um, person who's in the creative field, um, the illness is destructive. That's the problem. I, mm. I think we over-romanticise bipolar. You know, we view all people with bipolar as, you know, the Henry James of the world and, you know, other people, you know, who've had this condition. But for the vast bulk of people who are creative, the, the illness actually makes them less productive. Mm-hmm. So they may be creative for a while, but they're less organised, life becomes more chaotic. Um, but it's a real issue. I have many people who I see um, in various creative, creative fields who fear this. Some people refuse treatment point blank. Yeah. Um, others are willing to give it a go. And most people just find they are more productive, more creative over time and produce more so that they see the benefit of the diagnosis and treatment. But it's a real issue. It's a real issue. It it can be a two-edged sword, can't it? Because I've had people in the arts industries who find exactly as you say, Phil, that um, the illness itself is so intrusive and destructive of their life and their personal um, relationships and work, and yet sometimes the medications they find blunt creativity as well so there's there's not necessarily an easy balance between the two is there no nick and and i mean in terms of the medications um you know lithium which many of your listeners would have heard of in my experience can cause a sort of a numbing or blunting of mood in about 10 percent of people it's uncommon but it's real for those people and people hate that and we usually have to look at alternates um, I, I think with bipolar 2, the most common aspect is the depression. And when we think about bipolar, we think about the highs because that distinguishes it. But the lows, in fact, are the predominant mood experience. So you talk to someone, particularly with bipolar 2, and you ask them what proportion of their time are high and depressed. It's the vast bulk is depression. And it's really debilitating. You know, people say, I just struggle to get up in the morning. I can't do simple things even like, you know, clean my teeth, shower, make breakfast. Um, it's the, It saps the energy. People sleep a lot. When I first saw this, I thought it was the medications, but where we've written and researched and published on depression in bipolar. And people just get overwhelming tiredness. Um, you know, the most energetic, capable person, they're, they're spending 12, 15 hours a day in bed and their brain doesn't work. So... It's a big issue. So you've used the word debilitating, which I think is entirely appropriate. And so obviously getting onto it early, being able to predict, maybe being able to prevent would be fantastic. Let's touch on this recent research that you published in young people. Tell us what that was about. 
Well, um, I'll, I'll just a bit about quick background, Nick. Um, bipolar is very strongly genetic, and it was really interesting hearing the previous discussion with Penny, and that raises issues of what's illness, what's what's disability, what's normal range. Um, bi bipolar is impairing, as I said, but the genetics are strong. Um, it's bipolar and schizophrenia are sort of at the least about 70% of the cause is genetics or inheritance. Um, so it, it's a strong driver. Life trauma can contribute, life stresses can contribute. But the strongest predictor of who's going to develop bipolar is if you've got someone in your family with clear bipolar. Um, I'm a clinician and I've been struck by the fact of the impact of bipolar on a young person. I see bright young kids, you know, they have normal social lives, maybe good academically, and then late teens, early 20s, they get their first manic or depressed episode and it, their, their life trajectory just goes off the rails. So I've been interested, um, coming from that clinical background, of the last 10, 12 years in seeing if we can pick up early who's going to develop the illness. And so we've been studying kids. We call this the kids and sibs study. So it's kids or sibs of people with bipolar and the families like it. It's sort of something they can relate to. Um, so we've been interviewing them. We did brain scans. We've done genetic studies just to see, can we pick it up early? You raised that issue before. It takes ages for the diagnosis to be made. Um, so can we get it in its early phase? And that would lead to the possibility of early intervention. And what we've put a lot of energy into is understanding brain functioning. Um, we've published in um, um, leading international journals abnormalities in, in subtle but real abnormalities in brain structure and function. But this paper you're referring to, that in fact, came out in full form in the American Journal of Psychiatry just a few days ago, was the first to show if you track and look at the, co the connections in the brain, particularly the connections involved in control of mood, what we find is it's not the normal trajectory of, of comparison kids in families without mental illness. Mm -hmm. So what, what we're seeing is the connections in the areas involved in mood and thinking aren't developing at that normal rate. They seem to be weaker. And um, this is even before people are developing bipolar. So what we're seeing is this very real change in the development of these connections. And we think that's one of the issues that makes people vulnerable to bipolar. Which is an extraordinary concept that there are physical, structural neural connection differences that you can see on scans between someone at risk of bipolar and someone who's less at risk of bipolar. Um, what, what does that actually translate? Do we, have we followed them up long enough to know whether those changes actually translate into them getting the disease? Well, we, our numbers at the moment are small in terms of who develops bipolar. We've, um, in, in that particular report, I think we had about six kids that have developed their first manic or hypomanic episode. So any of your listeners who use the statistics will be aware that's not a huge number. <laughs> but what we've found, we, we've sort of got 100 in each group, so our total numbers are good. But what we've seen, Nick, in those six, these are more intense changes. Mm -hmm. um, so we think it's saying that the more profound these differences, the more likely you are to develop mania or hypomania.
And does that imply some intervention that we could get into to um, reduce the risk of either them getting bipolar or at least modifying the symptoms? Well, I think that's the next phase. And I just get back to your comment, Nick. I think when we started this research, we didn't realise how clear-cut these brain changes would be in these kids. And now that's becoming very obvious. And I think this is part of the what is happening with the genes before the illness develops. Uh, we're gearing up for an early intervention study. We're planning this with a colleague in Melbourne, looking initially at psychological skill development in these kids because we know often stress can trigger off early episodes so it's actually building up their psychological resilience and toolkits to stop the illness developing it may be for some kids that's not enough when we need to use medications there are obviously ethical issues around giving medications to young people who aren't ill at this stage um, so we're very cautious about that um, in Melbourne, Pat McGorry's work in schizophrenia early intervention shows the benefit of that. It's tougher with bipolar. You don't get the clear changes you get in early schizophrenia. So this is why this work's very important. But we're really thinking very strongly about the practical implications for early intervention. I think that's where the game will be. I'm sure Prudence, as a psychotherapist, will be absolutely delighted to know that the primary intervention plan for these young people is psychological and building up resilience rather than filling them full of pharmacologicals. I'm delighted to hear that. Yeah, look, and I think it's you know we, we, we can have a role in working with people around their ability to cope and presumably brain plasticity as well, that as they develop those skills, maybe is it, is it going to be likely we can reverse some of this or improve the sort of, if you like, the changes that are occurring neurologically look i don't know prudence i mean i think that's a really interesting issue you know can you reverse these i mean i think at the beginning it would be to halt the the, mm -hmm. the progression would be probably the more realistic aim um, i'm a great believer in the importance of um, good psychological treatment in people with bipolar um i think the reality is it doesn't replace medications but it works very much hand in hand We've published work on cognitive therapy and mindfulness therapy with excellent psychologists in Sydney, randomised controlled trials. So we've seen the benefit of, um, of, of adjunctive psychological treatment. And I think for many young kids, you know, to pick up the stresses that trigger episodes, to pick up early warning signs, you know, when someone is starting to go high or low, so you get in early and you have a greater chance of actually stopping people flipping into a full episode. I think the gold standard treatment for bipolar is good psychological in, in conjunction with good medications. I think that's a wonderful message to finish on. Um, Phil, thank you so much for your time. We could talk about this for much, much longer, but sadly time is upon us. I'm very grateful to you for giving your time to us today and um, thank you for joining us on, here on Triple R. That's a pleasure, Nick. Good to see you. That was Professor Philip Mitchell joining us from Sydney talking all about bipolar. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Prudence as a psychotherapist, what was your take? Look, I think it's important, isn't it, obviously, that we look at the breadth of options to intervene and help people when they're in distress. Um, I guess there's a couple of things I'm thinking about. One is, OK, w 
as we progress with this sort of research, how much are we engaging with that actual community to help, you know, co-design some of these investigations? What Are we asking the right questions? And are we asking those who suffer this distress, are we asking them, you know, enough information about what should we be looking at for them? The second one is, uh, as much as I agree with interventions potentially early in life. We have seen some really bad examples, for example, with autism, where um, kids are exposed to treatments to normalise their behaviour. And there's a kind of a bit of a hint here that, again, is sort of suggesting that BPD is a pathology and it needs to be fixed. And maybe there's elements of it which don't, that's not in kids. That's a really interesting view to channel my inner Professor Mitchell. Um, there will be a consumer rep on every one of his research committees guiding that side of things. So uh, he's all across that. Uh, <laughs> it's nearly time to wrap up. It's just time to say a huge thank you to our wonderful guests, Dr. Polly Bennett and Dr. F- uh, Professor Philip Mitchell, and to our multi-talented Dr. Nick Team, Prudence Dear, and Panel Beater. I've been Dr. Nick. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.